The Dangerous Twisted Mystery Podcast. Less cozy, more ugly. Warping listeners' minds since 2022. Music by Dangerous. Narrated by Twisted. Chapter 5. Shadow. Chess rolled over on the carpet in the living room. She gave the standard, what kind of freak breaks into his own house look at her father. Then, seeing the desperation on his face, she changed her tone to teenage disinterest. I was going to get the door, you know. Ah! A sudden stab of pain rocked her backwards, eyes rolling down and away from her father. Legacy looked Chess over. She began rubbing her thighs like they were on fire. The clock struck six. Legacy looked at his watch, perplexed. He had been early. In a relationship where consistency had dominated the landscape, this certainly wasn't the regular homecoming. Something had been bothering Legacy since he left the building. An hour later, there were takeout Chinese cartons stacked in a small pyramid on the kitchen table. Legacy had started doing this kind of merry mealtime behavior early on after Chess's mother had died. It was all about the presentation of the food on the table, and very little about the food itself. Legacy wasn't a cook. They hadn't eaten a home-cooked meal in years, with the exception of takeout from home-cooked Caroline's Bistro. Legacy had no contact with his deceased's wife family. He knew they existed, but even if they knew about him and Chess, they had never invited them to dinner. The pyramid was a childhood remnant that had turned into a mealtime tradition. Chess couldn't eat any of the bottom cartons until they'd finished the top one. The top one always seemed to contain a mixture of steamed vegetables, even though Legacy claimed to stack the boxes randomly. Legacy knew that she had certainly figured out his game by the time she was ten. She walked into the kitchen, saw the food stacked on the table, and announced, Wow, I'm shocked. Steamed vegetables. Her tone was drab and distant. Let's get this over with. This time, the top container was stuffed full of the greasiest, sweetest, friedest offshoot of modern Chinese cuisine, orange chicken. It was her favorite. She looked at her father for a moment as his hand reached for the top container, and he spooned most of it on her plate. His hands were steady, but something else connoted nerves. Chess served the rice. They ate in silence. Finally, Chess turned to Legacy, having speared a giant piece of chicken. She pointed the chopstick accusingly at her father and let a little teenage drama seep into the room. Why the wood-splintering entrance? All the freaky strangeness. What freaky strangeness? Legacy swirled a glass of scotch and sniffed the air above it. I am feeling, if anything, over-regular tonight. You're bothered. I know you want to know why the door was chained in the first place. She reached over and drug a piece of sticky chicken through the rice on Legacy's plate, leaving a slug-like sugary trail. I don't, he lied. Will you eat this, please? He pointed down on his plate. It was a well-known fact that Legacy liked almost nothing sweet. Chess spoke with her mouthful. She scooped the offending trail off her father's plate. A couple of your friends from work came by to drop off some paperwork. Legacy leaned forward, but Chess cut him off. I used the SDP. I chained the door. It was the standard delivery protocol. It called upon Chess to get identification of any unexpected visitor, and then, and only then, upon confirmation, was delivery acceptable. 
It had to fit through the gap in the door created by the chain lock. Anything that was a shadow's width wider than four inches had to be left outside or with the doormen. Chess resented any rule that prevented her from being able to open her mouth or her own front door. She called Legacy's rules the prison code. Legacy sat, leaning forward, but his head tilted and his eyebrows were arched. He should have known that they'd waste no time getting him all the documents for the case. Chess shot him a questioning look. The light in the room seemed to bend until it fell upon her face. She somehow soaked up the light in any room she entered, even at fifteen, when most kids duplicate every flaw they see in their parents, then leave them in the dark. Her largest act of adult rebellion had occurred when she'd quit the debate team to join the chess team. The most precious materials in the world existed somewhere in the interconnection of her heart and mind. Legacy felt her impatient build. Everything is in your study, she added. I moved a desk lamp so that you'll have some light there. Legacy paused as he pushed himself to his feet. I worry about you. He couldn't look at her. There's one scrapbook that didn't fit through the doorway. I couldn't open the door, so it's still in the hallway. Legacy had been heading to the study, but changed direction and walked towards the door. He bent over the scrapbook in the hall. His shadow crossed the dim light and disrupted the glare from the plastic-coated front page. An oily smear near the corner caught his attention. It meant next to nothing on its own, but like so many things, it is the reaction of improbabilities and happenstances that add mass and create their own gravity. Forces not dissimilar to those that had put Legacy on the case often cannot be broken down into obvious components. Many things happened, and Legacy was back in the game. In this present, however, in this hallway, it was a simple equation of width and the way the shadow crossed a page that put the prominence on a meaningless smudge. It was hardly worth a second thought, really. The next morning couldn't have started worse. Light streaming through a large window in the study brought a wave of impulses to Legacy's optic nerve. The residual effects of caffeine in the bloodstream fed these impulses. Legacy remembered blinking at five, and now, two hours later, his eyes were opening again. A pool of papers had been carefully laid out in rows and columns on the floor. He had put them there for a reason. Something in his mind connected the contents better when they were viewed as part of an overlapping puzzle. Words were running together in his head, but the facts of the case were clear, too clear. Legacy often wondered if recognizing the motives and basic human condition of the sickest people on earth made him laudable or loathsome. He had been introduced to some new tricks of a sick mind and felt a little disturbed that none of them gave rise to any level of surprise. Lexi hadn't said goodbye to Chess that morning. He left home at his normal time, but he was occupied with videotapes that had been stacked beside the briefs. He had saved them for last because the images of a crime can be so powerful that the details get hidden behind the potent wave of emotional noise. It was like the light that penetrated his eyelids in the morning. It flooded his perceptions, and he couldn't see clearly until he looked away. He was happy to look away from the video when it finished. The tapes were the kind of thing that most decent people would look away from immediately, but others were simply fascinated with. Legacy knew that it would be the first thing that Wagner would want to talk about. She'd want to know his thoughts. Unfortunately, he was collecting the thoughts of the perpetrators of the crime, not his own reactions to their work. It wouldn't be easy to explain that to her. He walked the path to the subway. 
A man shaking a tambourine stood at the entrance with a sign that read, I only play for money. It was a very modern take on panhandling. It was an artist putting himself above his audience. Legacy could feel his mind burrowing through his surroundings. Sometimes it was like watching another consciousness at work. He found that his mind obliged him by constructing a portrait of the kind of people he was pursuing. He clenched his jaw, and it felt like a creaky vice between two plates of teeth came together. He was uncomfortable. Legacy felt his involvement pulling him in a way that he didn't like. There was no warm embrace of the facts of the case. Wagner waited at the desk opposite Legacy's. The scowl on her face was the same as the previous day, but the suit that she was dressed in was a shade darker. You didn't see it coming. Legacy wasn't much for morning pleasantries. Don't you like my suit? It was exactly, precisely, and explicitly the thing she least wanted to talk about. It won't work for today. Legacy quickly moved to his desk. He cleared out the case sections and dumped a load of papers out of the briefcase. He picked out a roll of film and turned to Wagner. I need these blown up until they cover the wall. The long white wall had scattered photos from other cases. He passed over the film. I'm not your assistant, she stood defiantly. Her suit stood with her. Both seemed to be insulted. And what do you mean this won't work for today? Later, I'm going to send you downtown to solicit adult movie stars in the area, and they'll think you're a narc if you dress like that. I am a narc. Be that as it may. Legacy beckoned with a single finger. He knew Wagner's greatest fear. I know you didn't expect the girl to die. I'm telling you right now that the girl they have now, the one that's about to finish, is safe. We have at least a week. Wagner looked at him like the words he'd spoken were in some kind of foreign language. How do you know? And pick up some coffee on your way back. Ask. He couldn't supply the name because he didn't actually know it. My secretary knows how I like it. Legacy was pushing around papers on his desk as if the arrangement were some kind of puzzle. He heard Wagner's final comment, and it rang in his ears. I want to hear your thoughts on the case when I get back. Of course she did. Everyone did. The troubling fact was that he hadn't really developed any thoughts of use at all. There was no astonishing revelation or infallible blueprint that had formed overnight. After a night of study, he knew these men, but he was no closer to them. Wagner needed to hear that the steps that she was taking in her high-heeled leather uppers were steps taking her closer, but in reality, Lexi knew that they were simply taking steps. Closer or farther, he had no idea. This was the kind of behavior that would get most people a polite elbow to the bridge of the nose, but she didn't know him well enough to hit him. Yet. Legacy let his mind wander into the morality of his actions. If a deliberate lie gets a person closer to their greater goal, is it really such a bad thing? Revealing to Wagner how methodical and careful he perceived the criminals to be, or acknowledging that their task could not be completed in the given time frame, would have been a self-serving diagnosis. It would have led nowhere. He knew the moment would come when he would have to give Wagner his thoughts. He thought she might burst through the door at any moment. An eager person could have done her tasks in two hours. Legacy closed his eyes. The sound of the clattering music from his stereo was like a struggle in the background mimicking the inner workings of his own mind. Time slowed. 
Legacy sifted through the case, filtering every grain of possibility, sweeping over it again and again like the second hand of a clock. The clock barely moved before he opened his eyes again. Chess rolled over on the carpet in the living room. She gave the standard, what kind of freak breaks into his own house, look at her father. Then, seeing the desperation in his face, she changed her tone to teenage disinterest. I was going to get the door, you know. Ah! A sudden stab of pain rocketed her backwards, eyes rolling down and away from her father. Legacy looked Chess over. She began rubbing her thighs like they were on fire. The clock struck six. Legacy looked at his watch, perplexed. He had been early. In a relationship where consistency had dominated the landscape, this certainly wasn't the regular homecoming. Something had been bothering Legacy since he left the building. An hour later, there were takeout Chinese cartons stacked in a small pyramid on the kitchen table. Legacy had started doing this kind of merry mealtime behavior early on after Chess's mother had died. It was all about the presentation of the food on the table, and very little about the food itself. Legacy wasn't a cook. They hadn't eaten a home-cooked meal in years, with the exception of takeout from home-cooked Caroline's Bistro. Legacy had no contact with his deceased wife's family. He knew they existed, but even if they knew about him and Chess, they had never invited them to dinner. The pyramid was a childhood remnant that had turned into a mealtime tradition. Chess couldn't eat any of the bottom cottons until they'd finished the top one. The top one always seemed to contain a mixture of steamed vegetables, even though Legacy claimed to stack the boxes randomly. Legacy knew that she had certainly figured out his game by the time she was ten. She walked into the kitchen, saw the food stacked on the table, and announced, Wow, I'm shocked. Steamed vegetables. Her tone was drab and distant. Let's get this over with. This time, the top container was stuffed full of the greasiest, sweetest, friedest offshoot of modern Chinese cuisine, orange chicken. It was her favorite. She took... Damn it. <laughs> that was excellent. Holy shit. <laughs> Holy fuck. You stop it? Yeah, I think maybe we... <laughs> I think we found something out here. Chapter 6. Dirt. Upon reading the details, Legacy knew why they needed him. The group referred to in the file as the Vinyl Men knew how to commit a crime. Their activities and methods were self-consciously unique, meaning they took great pains to protect themselves from the authorities, which are built upon method and organization. They did this by being purposefully random and unpredictable. Precedent being the ground rod of investigation and profiling, there wasn't a lot to go on. Criminals who break new ground usually get away with it for a long time before their methods become familiar enough to constitute a pattern. Getting in front of them was not going to be easy. Legacy recognized that his special ops training as an interrogator made him very good at deciphering behavior but his patience was the single attribute that he would credit for cracking cases that nobody else could. He waited for motives to fall into place behind the criminal profiles. He could, and would, wait years or decades to get his man. He didn't have decades on this one. Decades had become days, and the minute hand on his watch was suddenly vying for his attention too. He had to concentrate. The first file told the story of a prom queen, 
a pom-pom girl fresh off the parade float getting abducted and held captive for two weeks. Missy Ann Navarlo, a senior at Burgess Florida High School, vanished, Tierra and all, only to reappear two weeks later in Maine on the campus of her chosen college. Her original story triggered the first investigation, but she had since recanted, telling the investigators that it was all an act of teenage rebellion. A transcript of her first interview ran through Legacy's ears. Legacy concentrated, sent his mind and himself into the interrogation room where the girl was being questioned. He could see and hear everything clearly. So, you were walking to your car. Yes, if I'd changed after, I could have walked faster, but the dress was dragging. At first I thought I was snagged on something like a car, but then I turned. What did you see? Her voice trembled. A man. A man in a leather suit. Go on. I should have yelled. Someone would have heard me. I should have called for my dad. He would have come. She broke down in sobs. We don't have to continue. She snapped her head up like somehow the policeman's reluctance to hear her story meant that he doubted her. I felt someone come up from behind me, then a prick on my neck, a sting or something like a needle. And the man in front of me said if I turned around, it would leave a scar. They must have been working together. She paused lost in thought. Legacy could tell that she hadn't thought much about the experience. She pieced it together as she spoke in a way that made sense. This happens when reasonably sheltered people go through an unreasonable, unsheltered experience. The details make no sense combined, so the mind stops looking for rational connections. It compartmentalizes the moments. As she remembered, her breathing slowed down, in and out, with the details. Her shirt riding up her stomach the fold of her capri pants brushing her leg hairs. She was close to recognizing reality again. A couple more seconds of thought was all that she needed for a breakthrough. But what she got was a dour officer asking the wrong question. Have you used needles in the past? The officer broke into the silence. Another heavyset agent chimed in. What I think Officer Dunn is asking is if you know the feeling well. That's a much nicer way of putting it, Officer Dumb. I'm O'Connell. He's done. With an N. D-U-N-N. She continued. It's hard to tell you apart. My apologies, officers. After the prick, I felt weak. I fell back and someone caught me. And even though the man in the leather suit had a hat brim tucked down around his eyebrows, I saw him do something. I can't forget it. He smiled. It was like everything in the world was going his way. On the day, I was going to regret for the rest of my life. The thrill he exhibited was sickening. Legacy followed the accounts of the next couple of days closely, reading more for the moments like the capture. She woke up from her drugged state in a room. There was dried vomit in her mouth and nose, but her dress was clean and pressed. There was a mini-bar in the room with a sink and a toilet. No windows or natural light leaked in from anywhere. Every ten minutes or so, footsteps on the roof would inform her that she was guarded and not alone. The bed was flophouse quality, and the springs creaked as she lifted herself from the sweat-stained sheets. The noise must have brought attention because someone walked in the door only a moment after. It was Legacy. Or really, it wasn't, but Legacy had burrowed so far into the story that he was standing in the doorway when the figure that really entered brushed by, watching what followed. He wished he could be further away. The man's face was hidden by a leather mask, and his body covered in a royal blue acrylic or vinyl mixture that looked like rubber and conformed like paint.
The report stated that he was quite kind. Legacy watched as the vinyl man mimed a conversation with the girl. When he was done talking, he brushed his fingers through her hair. Missy pulled back, and the man kindly patted her knee instead. He walked to the door and knocked three times. Three more vinyl men entered the room, orange, brown, and yellow. They wheeled in a metal frame nearly as tall as the doorframe, cubically geometric in form. It looked like it was some kind of fitness equipment, but seconds later they had her hands clamped to the corners, back arched over the center support, stretched out and immobile. The three men were out the door with a gesture from Blue. Missy gathered a breath to scream, and it was only then that she found a very thin membrane over her mouth. It flexed to allow air in, then sealed completely against the outward pressure. All the air leaving had to be expunged through her nose. There would be no screaming. Legacy studied the device on her mouth. It was homemade. The design was simple and effective. It was the exact opposite of what the interrogator would develop. He was up against more than just a group of criminals. They were engineers, circus conductors, and drunken station masters. He could have really enjoyed the chase if it were not for what came next, the sickness that ensued with him as a helpless observer. The video images were living in front of him. Blue approached Missy face to face. He told her not to look down. His hand went under her dress, and he flipped a switch. Then came a humming sound. Pubic hairs began to drop out from under her dress. He leaned in to ask a question at intimate range. Missy watched the officers in the interrogation room carefully. He asked me if it tickled. He didn't hurt me. He was the nice one. Dunn asked. And the two weeks later? They let you go. That was it? Missy's eyes darted up and to the left, lingering in a memory. Two weeks of hell. Legacy would have handled the questioning in a completely different manner. If he had gotten to know her right after she'd been released, he might have found details that she would never admit to knowing now. This is the point in the questioning that she went inside herself and never came out again, Legacy thought. There were more questions on the transcript. Legacy stood at the edge of the light watching the interrogation, scuffing his shoes on the gray-flecked industrial tile. They'd lost her. Her body language was closed off, and her voice seemed distant and hollow in the microphone. Legacy pushed stop on the tape player, and the recording came to an abrupt halt. He was back in his office. There was nothing more of use on this tape. He scanned down the paper transcript and saw that the policeman peppered her with more questions, but the answers became more and more vague. She'd realized that she was being humiliated, and then the use of one wrong tone or the wrong words had seemingly put the police in fraternity with those who had tormented her. How much did their incompetence cost? Legacy was furious. He knew that the best chance lay in getting inside that first victim's head. The first was where the criminal organization made all of its mistakes. The girl had retreated. This was supported by the fact that two weeks later, she recanted her testimony, saying that she'd only spent two weeks with her boyfriend on a cross-country trip. The pictures on the internet? They weren't her. Legacy's nails dug into the transcript. He was ready to push the file into the trash when his eye was drawn to one line at the beginning of the interview. How had he missed it before? He was so busy putting himself into the scene, he hadn't noticed a very basic behavior. He hadn't learned anything of the details of the abduction, but rereading what they had said, it was clear that this was not the case for the men who took her. 
The men had learned something from an earlier attempt, and they had to brag. He drew a line under a sentence of the transcript. And the man in front of me said that if I turned around, it would leave a scar. There was another victim out there. They hadn't found the first abductee of the vinyl men yet. Chapter 7. Darcy. Darcy sat outside a truck stop on I-84 on the outskirts of Salt Lake City. She had a self-styled quaff of hair that looked like a muffin top. The front dangled below her eyes in an uneven, greasy hat brim. Two dazzling blue eyes peeked out of the mess. Her skin had a pale shine, but like her body, it was thin and fragile. It's all natural, Darcy said, pointing to the stain on her shirt just beside the outline of her nipple. Bong, one of three rebellious skateboarder boys, cutting school and listening to her story, spit chew on the ground and grimaced. So is that, but I don't want it on my shirt. Some boys got no control, she said, wetting her lips, then striking a match and putting a cigarette between them. A chorus of damn and whoa and shit that came from the slacker boys. It was the most impressed they'd been in months. Bong pointed to three more stains on her shirt. How often do you wash this? His question was met with cat trance sass. Darcy smiled and took a deep drag off of her cigarette. Twice a day. A semi-truck rolled by, but it was like the entire world went silent as the boys digested the news. Darcy slugged Bong in the arm to break the trance. Tard. Every week. What kind of slut do you think I am? A watch alarm went off, and the boys explained that they needed to get home for dinner. Bong lingered after the other boys had mounted their skateboards. He did his best prepubescent James Dean impression and told Darcy he might be back after dark. Darcy said nothing. She put her middle finger all the way into her mouth and sucked it clean. The boy was halfway to an erection when he noticed that at the end of the seduction, she was flipping him off. Middle finger playfully tapping on pursed lips. Bong responded by finding somewhere to target his anger. Where'd you get that scar anyway? Was one of those guys pierced with a fishing hook? Darcy touched the visceral scar on her neck. It was misshapen and sported pigment that looked bright red like a volcano. Most people who have such a mark pretend it's a birthmark because the kind of cut that makes them is almost always the result of the insertion of a surgical steel blade or needle. It's my birthmark, Darcy sneered. My dad's a dermatologist. That's a scar. So what's up with the neck, baby? It might have been all the concern a teenager could muster, but it sounded like a taunt. Go home. She turned away from him. Then, hearing his wheels hit the pavement, she shouted after him. Don't come back till after nine. She pressed the scar between her thumb and forefinger, annoyed. She was a long way from home. 